The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. For conduct to be under color of office, it at least has to be the case that the federal official believes they are exercising the power of that office. And in this particular case, I think that's causing a lot of problems uh, for Meadows, and it will for Trump. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 15th, 2023. The question of whether the Fulton County trial of Donald Trump and his co-defendants will be removed to federal court is now before the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, and it's on its way to the Supreme Court. Judge Steve Jones of the District Court in the Northern District of Georgia denied Mark Meadows' motion for removal. He has now also denied an emergency stay of that ruling. And so the question goes to the appeals court in the federal system, even as the underlying criminal case percolates along in Fulton County Court in Georgia. To discuss it all, we gathered in the virtual jungle studio Lawfare's Anna Bauer, legal fellow, senior editor Alan Rosenstein, and Lee Kowarski of the University of Texas Law School, who wrote an excellent piece on the subject for Lawfare. We talked about it all. What's the right standard for removal? And should Meadows' case be yanked out of Fulton County Court? What is the 11th Circuit and the Supreme Court likely to do with it? How long are they going to take? And will the federal litigation screw up the timing of the Fulton County prosecution? It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 15th. The question of removal. Okay, so let's start to orient people who don't know what the heck we're talking about and who have heard removal for the first time in the context of these proceedings. Anna, give us a little bit of background. What is removal and why are we all talking about it? And what is the history of, I think the technical words is uh, for it, is shenanigans over removal in this case. Right. So removal is the process by which a person who is either being prosecuted or sued in state court can remove their case in state court to a federal forum. So they can take it from state court to federal court. Usually what that means in terms of the consequences or implications are that you get a federal judge instead of a state court judge. You, If you go to trial, you would get a federal jury instead of a state jury. So you might have a different jury pool. Uh, federal procedural rules rather than state procedural rules would apply. But the core of the claims or the prosecution are supposed to 
remain the same in terms of substance. It would still be, you know, the same prosecutors who are prosecuting the case. So the core of the case remains the same, but the difference is just the federal forum is 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 different as opposed to the state forum. And there's a statute that allows people to do this under federal law, 28 USC 1442, and that statute allows federal officers and presumably former federal officers, although maybe we'll get into why there's some question about that, uh, but it allows federal officers to move state criminal prosecutions to federal court so long as they are being prosecuted for acts that they've done under color of office. There's this three-pronged test that they have to Uh, show in order to get their case into federal court. So they have to show they were a federal officer at the time of the conduct. They have to show that there's some causal connection between the acts that they did and the uh, color of their office. And then they finally have to raise a, a colorable federal defense. And so in the Mark Meadows case, which is why we're talking about federal removal. Mark Meadows has been uh, charged with a a racketeering violation and other crimes in Georgia state court. And he, right out the gate after being indicted, sought to remove his case to federal court under this statute, 1442. He went to federal court for an evidentiary hearing and he testified, which was a surprise to everyone. He claimed that everything that he did that was alleged in the indictment, things like setting up the Raffensperger phone call, uh, making other calls or setting up other calls, he said that those were all things he did within the scope of his office as the chief of staff during the Trump administration. So recently, federal judge Steve Jones decided whether or not Meadows would be allowed to move his case to federal court. Judge Jones said no. He denied Meadows' claim to move, and he presumably sent it back to state court. But Meadows has now appealed that decision, and here we are wondering what the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals is going to do, and that's why we're here. All right. So, Lee, I want to start us here with the question of why the battle lines are drawn on removal the way they are. So to read the commentariat on this subject, if you are a liberal, you don't want this case removed, you want Meadows and Donald Trump to have to sweat it out in Fulton County local court. And if you're, you know, more sympathetic to the president or if you're representing Uh, one of these defendants, you're excited about removal to federal court. So why is it that the battle lines are drawn this way? Why Why are we assuming that federal court is a more friendly jurisdiction or venue for these defendants than Fulton County Court? And are we all just lining up based on who's filed what motion, or is there some logic to this? Thanks, Ben. So I think there's a couple of big reasons why uh, folks care and why folks on either side of the partisan divide might have strong feelings about whether it goes forward in state court or in federal court. I'm not sure all those intuitions are correct, and I'll talk about that a little bit. So I think the first big thing that people point to is that uh, the jury pool might be different because there's this idea that he's going to get a Fulton County jury if he's in state court, which is majority minority. And then if it goes to the Northern District of Georgia, then it's going to be majority white. Um, That intuition is not actually quite correct because Uh, The federal jury pool would almost certainly come uh, exclusively from the Atlanta division of the Northern District of Georgia, which is 10 counties uh, either making up or immediately surrounding Atlanta. So the demography of that geographic unit is close enough to the demography of Fulton County that I don't really know how much uh, the the difference in jury pool matters. Uh, The second reason 
uh, that folks might prefer the case to be in federal court, at least if you're on the Trump side, is that anytime you move a case from state court to federal court, there's an opportunity to gum up the works with procedural motions, with delay. And uh, the Trump uh, folks probably you know, perceive the opportunity to move for transfers for to different venues in the event they do this. I think that's probably uh, Meadows' endgame. Now, I am also skeptical of that intuition uh, just because I'm not sure how much friendlier the federal courts are than the state courts are. In other words, you know, the, the, the 11th Circuit is, sure, it's pretty, you know, conservative, um, but it's got a non-trivial number of uh, Obama and Biden judges on it, uh, whereas the Georgia Supreme Court, if I'm, someone should correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it has something like 16 appointees, all of which are appointed by the Republican governor, and I think one is a Republican who won a statewide race. So it's not as though the benches look that different. So it's not as though one bench is going to be more receptive to procedural shenanigans than the other. The third reason I think is probably the most salient, which is that if Trump wins, then his Justice Department is going to be able to do away with the cases much more expeditiously if they're in federal court than they are than uh, they would be able to do if the cases are in state court. So I think that's why folks probably should care the most. Oh, and I'll tack on one other reason that I, that I think actually people ought to care about, although I'm not sure how much it matters to the litigants. Um, the public certainly cares because the trial will almost certainly be televised if it's in state court. Uh, but won't be televised if it's in federal court. So that's four things to chew on um, and why I think the public cares. In general, I think the stakes in removal are probably lower than other folks think they are. And do you have a sense of whether there's a left-right valence in, not in political terms, but in judicial terms, as you move up the appellate ladder, the courts get uh, federal courts get more conservative. And so as you move up the appellate ladder here, does removal become more likely? Or is this just one of those technical questions? And we'll get to the technical qualities of the question in a moment, that it really doesn't matter if you have a 6-3 conservative majority or an 11th Circuit or an o uh, Obama-appointed district judge. Uh, you're going to get very similar answers. How political are these uh, removal questions? So I think removal itself is a pretty antiseptic legal issue. Um, but of course, you can't disentangle even antiseptic legal issues from you know, a, a volatile political context in which they're embedded. You know, all that's to say is that although it's sort of a boring legal question, I think in other contexts wouldn't activate uh, judges according to uh, their partisan priors, you know, certainly there's a possibility for that here. In terms of the valence of uh, the various nodes of the judicial hierarchy, you know, Judge Jones is an Obama appointee. You know, he was appointed and, and consented to by the Senate at 98 to 0. Um, certainly he is you know, going to be more quote unquote progressive than the 11th Circuit, which is generally considered the second most conservative federal appellate jurisdiction in the country after uh, the Fifth Circuit. You know, nevertheless, there's a lot of textualists on that bench. Um, and we're already seeing that reflected in one of the questions that it asked the parties to brief. And I think the 11th Circuit uh, in terms of its likely decision-making, um, there's a lot of potential randomization to the panels is, is actually less conservative than the Supreme Court. Um, so I think as you move up the federal judicial hierarchy, um, to the extent you think the procedural issue is you know, inextricably intertwined with politics, I think that uh, Meadows and by extension Trump is likely to fare better and better as he goes higher. Okay, Alan. So, what did Lee leave out? Is there is there more to the the politics of this than than that, or is you know, or is that basically the size of it? 
Well, I, I think Lee gave a, a great list of factors. And, and the only one that I would add to that, and this is a bit of a reading between the lines, but I think it is really important and especially explains the the activation of partisans on both sides of this and just the intensity with which this issue, which Lee correctly points out, is often kind of anodyne and antiseptic and pretty technical. The intensity with which this is being litigated, you know, both in the court and and in particular outside the court, um, is the issue of the merits of what will no doubt be Trump's or one of Trump's main defenses, which is that he has some sort of constitutional immunity under either under his Article Two powers or under the Supremacy Clause to have done what what he did, and and the reason that this is triggered, or at least the reason that this is relevant to the removal question, is that at its core, Trump and Meadows and and you know th- th- those folks should be able to remove to federal court if they can put forward a colorable claim that what they were doing was within their official duties and therefore might be um, immune from state prosecution. And although removal does not require the judge to decide whether, in fact, this was within their official duties and therefore they do, in fact, get immunity, um, it requires the judge to accept that there is a colorable claim of that. And I think that the specter of Trump and Meadows and others successfully removing to federal court, uh, and therefore there being a possibility that, you know, in the trial itself or in a pretrial motion, they would uh, move to dismiss and potentially might even do so successfully on the grounds that they are constitutionally immune uh, from state prosecution and potentially even federal prosecution uh, for acts that most people, I think, correctly view as um, trying to overthrow an election. I I think that just freaks people out. Um, And so I think that's why we're seeing a lot more, let's call it vigorousness, especially on the part of those who are skeptical of Trump's position at the removal phase um, than one would uh, ordinarily uh, see, especially given that the um, uh, given that uh, under the federal officer removal statute, it's really just not a very high threshold to trigger removal. That is, it's just that the defendant has to show a colorable uh, federal defense. All right. So Anna, Right now, the procedural posture is we have Meadows appealing an order denying removal, and we also have some additional removal motions pending. Are there any of those that are as strong as Meadows is, or can we just take Meadows as the strongest case for removal that's going to materialize out of this litigation? Ben, I think you're right that Mark Meadows has the strongest claim of those who have filed for removal. There are four others who have filed for removal. The you, We can kind of group them into, on one hand, there's the fake electors, Kathy Latham, Sean Still, and David Schaefer. And they've made the argument that, you know, by pursuing these duties, so-called duties as electors, they were acting as federal officials or they were acting under the direction of federal officials. Fonnie Willis has responded to that, saying that, you know, just because you were you were basically impersonating a federal official, but that doesn't make you a federal official. Yeah. So do do they get removed to like an imaginary court or (laughs) where, where does a fake elector get removed to? Uh, to fake federal court, I guess. Um, but, <laughs> but so I, I think that Judge Jones is not going to uh, be particularly uh, impressed by that argument. Um, they do have a hearing coming up, though, uh, next week. And then the other person who has sought removal is Jeff Clark, the uh, former D- DOJ official. And while he actually was a federal official at the time of this conduct, I think that Fonnie Willis and her team have a really good argument and and a lot of evidence to show that, well, all the things he is alleged to have done are things that his direct superiors in DOJ were telling him, no, you can't do this. This is not within the scope of your office. Right. So in fact, it- he, he <laughs> had to get his boss removed and replaced with himself in order to supposedly or try to gain the authority to do the things he want to do, he's going to have a little bit of trouble with the undercolor of federal office prong. 
Right, exactly. And so and so for those reasons on on those two kind of groupings of people who are trying to remove, I just don't think that they're as strong as Meadows. And I think that one reason why maybe Trump was waiting for to see what happens with Meadows is because they potentially want to make the argument that the whole case should be removed with Meadows if Meadows is removed. So instead of having to go through the whole process of making his own kind of argument about removal. So Trump himself has held off, right? Mm -hmm. And he has a few more days in which to move for removal. I can think of one very good reason why he's probably waited, which is that, you know, Meadows had to take the stand in order to make the affirmative case that his case should be removed. The former president really doesn't want to take the stand and subject himself to cross-examination. How clear is it that if Meadows gets removed, Trump gets a free ride with him? Lee, you've looked at this. Do Is it clear that Meadows goes with Trump? Not at all. And I think this is one of the places where the two sides are really talking past each other. So the statute... It's pretty clear. Most of the time when you're dealing with officer removal, it's because it's a civil suit against the officer, right? Like, you know, the officer ran over my flowers in the course of her mail route or something like that. And it's really clear in those situations that if you have one claim that meets the criteria for the removal, that all of the claims go to federal court. And, you know, a claim is roughly analogous to account. And so in the civil context, it's pretty clear that if one claim goes, they all go. They all travel with it. I use the phrase ride along. There's no clear ride along rule in criminal cases. Uh, In fact, there's almost no case law on this specific question. And it seemed from the outset that Judge Jones did sort of the intuitive thing, which is say, of course, this is just as to Meadows. All of the other defendants don't get to ride along with him. Now, I think that all of the other defendants will contest that intuition, but there was no percentage in contesting it at the moment that Jones wrote that. They all wanted to sit back and see how Jones was going to rule on the Meadows removal notice before having that fight. Gotcha. All right. So set us up here, Lee. What is the standard that a defendant in a criminal case has to meet before the case will be removed? It's pretty low. First, they have to show that they're a federal official. Second, they have to show that they were kind of plausibly acting uh, under color of their official duty. Uh, And third, they have to show a colorable federal defense. And on both the second prong and the third prong, it's not as if they have to make the airtight case that they would have to make in order to prevail at trial. The idea is that they only have to make some lower showing. And if the question is how much lower, it's pretty low. The problem for the removing defendants in this case is that they're having a hard time even doing that. And part of that has to do with the RICO charge, which makes it exceptionally easy to argue that even if all of the things that the defendants are saying are true, they still wouldn't defeat the RICO charge. And so the defenses aren't colorable. All right. So I want to ask a couple clarifying questions about the standard, which seems obvious, but I think is a little bit less obvious than it seems before we get into debating the the merits of Meadows's removal question. So the first is what under color of his office means. So the mail carrier who runs over somebody's flower bed is clearly delivering mail at the time. And so, you know, pushing a U.S. government mail wagon and Uh, going between houses that are on his route. But if you're the White House chief of staff 
or the president and you're, you know, calling somebody in your capacity as president or White House chief of staff. So when you get the call, it's that the president is calling or, you know, the president's chief of staff is calling. He's calling you in his official capacity as president, whether he's properly exercising the power of his authority or not. Is that under color of his office or is that using the pretext of his office to do private business what counts as under color? Do you have to be exercising the proper authority or can you be, you know, as Macbeth would say, draped in borrowed robes? Uh, I think the answer is that you can be draped in borrowed robes, or at least it's the case that under color of law means something more than lawfully. It doesn't mean that you can walk around saying, I'm the president and doing whatever you want. And just because you're the president, it's under color of law. So it means something in between those two things. It's a little bit of a gray area. Um, and a lot of times the questions will devolve into you know, whether the person really thought they were exercising the power of their office. So take an example. You know, and one I've seen on Twitter is that when Obama orders the assassination of al Awaki, you know, there's lots of people that say, that he doesn't have the authority to do that, right? Like that's not a lawful exercise of the presidency to assassinate a United States citizen. And that's clearly nonetheless under color of his office. He is still the president issuing a command to kill a United States citizen. And we wouldn't say that that's outside the color of his office, even though many people would fairly dispute whether um, it was actually a lawful exercise of his presidential authority. Yeah. So ju just to jump in here, I, I think the way Lee framed it, which is there's the spectrum between, on the one hand, things that are sort of obviously within the core and even lawful components of what the president does on the one hand, uh, and then things that are just totally outside anything that could even be considered presidential on the other hand. This question, the answer is somewhere in the middle. And the question is where in the middle? I tend to think and, and this, I, I may be a little extreme on this, but I tend to think that in the case of someone like the president, or let's say the case of the chief of staff, who is sort of deputized to do a lot of the stuff the president has to think about, the answer should be pretty close to the presidential side, which is to say, although it is true that not everything the president does is done under the color of the presidential authority, just because the president does it, um, right, to give the famous example from Trump, if he just shoots someone on Fifth Avenue because he doesn't like them, that's not under the color of his office. I actually think that the vast majority of things, even those that might seem at first glance to be more in the president's personal interest, should actually be considered, because of the unique nature of the presidency, colorably under the color of office, let's say. And, and you know, to respond to a common criticism of this position that I sometimes hear, which is, but that's not the same standard we would apply to, for example, the canonical case here, which is, again, the postal driver who drives over your flower bed. In those cases, we're actually not so generous to the federal official as to what falls under the color of office. My answer would be that the president is, in fact, different. There is, in fact, only one president, and there is only one chief of staff, and situations in which the president is prosecuted come up, well, only once in American history, at least by a state court, and, and you know, uh, hopefully will not happen very often. Uh, and so I am very comfortable saying that the president is, in fact, a special case and where the president takes an action or where the chief of staff takes an action sort of on behalf of the president, we should generally presume and be very comfortable with most of those things being considered under color of office. Again, not lawful. That's very important. Not necessarily lawful, but under color of office and therefore removable to federal court. And if that means that most things involving the president just get removed to federal court, that seems like an okay rule because you're dealing with literally one person or, you know, one person and a handful of their closest associates. So, Alan, I had two things I might say in response. And I, I'm actually inclined to agree with your intuitions around the presidency and the chief of staff generally. And, but these are two things that I think are causing problems for them in this case. The first is that in addition to having to show, obviously, the, uh, that they're within the scope of the office on prong two, in order to make out their supremacy clause defense, they have to show that what they did was no more than what was necessary and proper to the office on prong three. 
The second thing, uh, and this is probably a little bit of pushback to what you said, is that I think in order for conduct to be under color of office, it at least has to be the case that the federal official believes they are exercising the power of that office. And in this particular case, I think that's causing a lot of problems uh, for Meadows and it will for Trump because they seem acutely aware in a lot of evidence that seems to be available on the record that what they were doing was pursuing Trump's private interests by way of the campaign and not to really believe that what they were doing was the business of the United States. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you 
constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. Yeah, so uh, this is the this brings me to the second clarifying question about the standard, which is what we know about the focal length of the lens through which we examine the undercolor of office question. So, you know, George Terwilliger, the lawyer for Meadows, wants the examination to be through the lens of the specific acts, the specific overt acts that are accused, you know, is setting up a call for the president something you would expect the chief of staff to do? Answer, obviously, yes. Right. And if the chief of staff were the White House switchboard operator or, you know, a kind of personal assistant, you would say that that would surely be the end of the inquiry, right? If if the White House personal presidential you know phone operator uh, is told to make place a call on behalf of the president and he or she does it, you would say that's under color of that person's office. End of story. But there's something about what you just said, Lee, which is that he's acutely aware that he's pursuing the president's personal interests that changes that calculation. And Judge Jones responds by saying, hey, I'm not going to look at the specific overt act in isolation. I'm going to look at the sort of gravamen of the RICO charge as the relevant act that's either under color of law, under color of office or not. And my question is, is there a right and wrong answer to the question of how far in on the act you're supposed to zoom in these inquiries? Or is it the kind of thing that there is a, you know, we just don't deal with, haven't dealt with a lot of cases where that's really a question yet So we don't know. Alan, go ahead. So I think that you're right to point out that this is very tricky. I mean, this level of generality problem that you're describing, or as you described it, the focal length problem just pops up over and over, over again in the law. And I think that's a testament to the fact that these, you know, there are many levels of generality, many different focal lengths that one could conceivably bring to bear on these kinds of problems. And there's no Um, kind of logically self-evident answer here. And so I think to decide in a particular case what focal length we should use, we have to understand the functional purpose of this doctrine. And I think fundamentally the functional purpose of all these doctrines, right, whether they're removal doctrines or immunity doctrines, they're kind of animated by the general concern that we don't want federal officials to be chilled in the exercise of their lawful duties because of concerns of later litigation. Of course, we also don't want them to flagrantly violate the law. So there's a balance between those uh, those two things. And so the way I think that the, the judge in this case needs to think about it, and the judges will have to think about it, is given what we know on the record at you know such and such point in the trial, right, or in the proceedings, and obviously what you know at an evidentiary hearing on removal is different than what you might know halfway through trial on a motion to dismiss on immunity grounds or whatever, given what we know at this point, should we be concerned that um, denying removal or denying immunity or subjecting this official to state prosecution um, would chill the lawful exercise in the future of presidents and, you know, their chiefs of staff in comparable situations, right? So the kind of thought experiment that I I think is important to to ask is, well, what if an election really were stolen? What would we want a president to do in that situation? 
And, you know, how can we craft a doctrine that does not prevent or does not overly chill that future president from acting in the way that we might want them to? Now, that's a very abstract kind of structure. When you apply it here, I do think that Lee is correct to focus on evidence in the record that shows that Meadows and Trump understood that their claims of a stolen election were not, in fact, meritorious, and that therefore they could not be acting to satisfy the president's take care obligations. And really what they were just trying to do was lie their way in and, and you know, badger state officials um, in order to give Trump a political win. And to the extent that that really can be established at the, you know, at, at this point in the proceedings, um, so as to extinguish even a colorable defense under federal law, I think that that would be in fact a totally proper basis for removal. I'm a little skeptical, frankly, that at this point, you ha- you know the, the the proceedings have done enough to show that on the record. And to be honest, I actually don't think that's how the uh, Judge Jones justifies denying removal. I think he justifies it on much more general and I think more problematic grounds. But I do think that's the right way of thinking about it. I'm just skeptical that there's enough on the record at this stage to establish that in a way that extinguishes what I think really is a fairly low bar, which is this colorable standard. Lee, what do you think? Is is did Judge Jones set the focal length of the lens at the correct level of of zoom? And is there a right answer to the question of how zoomed in you should or shouldn't be? My reaction to the order in that respect is a little complex. I mean, I should say as a prior, like divorced from any text of the statute or my knowledge of any doctrine, just as a policy matter. I think this case should be in federal court, Um, but nobody pays attention to me for my policy preferences. People kind of care about what the law says. And so the question then is like in terms of the focal length of the law, uh, does Jones get it about right? I think he gives it a pretty good effort. It's definitely not perfect. You know, the issue is this. The cases make pretty clear that what you've got to interpret here in order to figure out what the focal length is, is what it means to be prosecuted for an act taken under color of your official duties. And that's a tricky question, right? It's not self-defining. And in this case, Mesa versus California, the Supreme Court has said that we're going to call it a causation requirement. And so I'm going to call it a causation requirement. And so the question then is, does Judge Jones get the causation requirement right? And he uses the term gravamen. He calls it the heart of the claim. In light of the fact that it's not self-defining, I think he gets it about right. I mean, I think Alan has a really lovely analytical framework for talking about it. And, you know, at base and in layperson speak, what Judge Jones is saying is that if the bulk of the charge is for conduct that is within the official federal duties of the officer, then it gets removed. And if the bulk of the charge is for stuff that is not within the official duties of the officer, then it doesn't get removed. You know, that strikes me as a reasonable balance between the two extreme positions, right? There's the Meadows favored position, which is, oh, if there's any act in the indictment anywhere, that was under, you know, uh, that was within the purview of my official duties of chief of staff, then it gets removed. And Fannie Willis says, no, it doesn't matter if all of the acts in the indictment are within the chief of staff duties, uh, you don't get removal. And those both strike me as unreasonable. So, uh, you know, I think that Judge Jones makes some errors in application, but he gets the focal length basically right. All right. So, Alan, one of the components of the Fonnie Willis brief, as well as the Judge Jones analysis, is whether the activity in question uh, by Meadows may have violated the Hatch Act. And as Fonnie Willis argues it, and Judge Jones seems to accept, although he doesn't ever specifically say that there was a Hatch Act violation, if you were within the you know, violating the Hatch Act as White House Chief of Staff, you can't possibly have been under color of your office because your office doesn't allow you to violate the Hatch Act. 
why is that not, in your view, a dispositive argument? So it's not, in my view, a dispositive argument because the basis, again, whether for Meadows or for Trump, ultimately, of claiming that what they were doing was within their sort of constitutional authorities and legal authorities is not statutory. It's fundamentally constitutional. I mean, the the opinion of the judge is like 45 or 50 pages. Um, and there's a lot of technical stuff the judge has to get through. But fundamentally, I think the core of the argument is the two pages that actually directly precede the discussion of the Hatch Act. And that is about whether or not, um, as a constitutional matter, the president's involvement in a uh, state presidential election could ever be within the president's constitutional powers. Specifically, if you were to look for a textual hook, you'd probably look to the take care clause in Article 2, right? The duty that the president has to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And uh, here, the judge basically follows uh, what Judge Mehta uh, ruled in the um, blasting game litigation in, in the D.C. District Court, which uh, is a civil suit uh, against Trump uh, for January 6th. Um, in saying, you know, the, pre- the president doesn't have any control over state elections, and nor can the president claim any influence there by appealing to the certification of electoral college vote, because when you look at the details of the certification of electoral college vote, it mentions no role for the president, while, you know, making clear that the vice president has a role. And of course, this is a very important um, argument generally, because it's, it's at the core of, you know, Mike Pence's famous pushing back against President Trump's attempt to get him to throw out the electoral college vote. The problem with this argument, in my view, is that it just assumes the thing that is actually up to debate about the take care clause, which is how broadly does it uh, go? Right, the take care clause on its face does not refer to the president, or it does not just refer to the laws that the president is directly charged with overseeing. It refers to the laws, and I think there's a, a very reasonable reading of it that suggests that the president has a duty to make sure that the laws generally are being enforced. Now, that doesn't necessarily give the president any specific powers. For example, the take care clause does not give the president the power to interfere with the electoral college vote directly in the way that he wanted to. Um, but I just don't see why you would read the take care clause to exclude the president being able to take reasonable and appropriate steps to see if he can make sure that, for example, a state, you know, a state presidential election is not being conducted fraudulently and therefore fraudulent information is being sent up to the, the Congress and the certification of the electoral college vote. Now, again, I want to emphasize that's very different from saying that the president legally thought so, right? In this case, I suspect, you know, and I've argued with with you and, and Anna, right, in, in lawfare posts, um, that the evidence will show that the president didn't have a legitimate reason to think so. But categorically, I see no reason to exclude attempts to make sure that an election was not stolen from within the Article II power. Now, I, I emphasize this because if you believe that is the case, then I don't see how the Hatch Act discussion is relevant. Because if the Hatch Act really does prevent Trump and Meadows from engaging in the conduct that they engaged with, and more specifically, would prevent even a good faith version of Trump and Meadows from engaging in the conduct that they engaged with, then it would be arguably unconstitutional, because it would, again, then arguably interfere with the president's constitutional authority to do what he can reasonably to make sure that elections aren't stolen in this country. So I, again, I just I don't see why the Hatch Act here is relevant, um, except atmospherically, in suggesting that at least Congress thinks that pure political action is now within the official uh, duties of the presidency, which fine, that seems like a reasonable thing to think. You don't need the Hatch Act for that. And more fundamentally, the whole question that is an, is in dispute in this case was, was this a pure political play by President Trump? Or was this a combination of a, a, a political play and a good faith attempt to prevent the election from being stolen? Which again, just to repeat myself, because I really don't want to be inter- uh, misunderstood here. I don't think once all the evidence is in, Trump will be able to argue. But at this stage in the proceedings, that's exactly what's up for debate. All right. So, Lee, what do you think? Is the Hatch Act as irrelevant to this conversation as Alan thinks it is? Or or is Alan overlooking the importance of it somehow? In many respects, my intuitions converge around Allen's. In some important respects, they don't. I do think it's analytically kind of irrelevant. 
in the sense that Fannie Willis can prove that Meadows and Trump were acting outside the scope of uh, their authority without proving a violation of the Hatch Act. So I don't know why we're focusing on the Hatch Act, except that atmospherically, um, it provides a very nice frame through which to focus the discussion here because it collapses all of the activity into one of two camps, right? It's, you know, either good governance stuff or political stuff, right? And that's a very convenient framework uh, for Willis. I take some issue with what Alan said in the following two senses. I think first, generally, I don't have quite the robust view of the take care clause that Alan seems to have. Um, but more importantly, uh, I don't see a necessary collision between the Hatch Act and the pres- even a robust view of the president's take care responsibilities. And that's because if a federal official is violating the Hatch Act, they're by definition engaged in private political activity. Uh, And so it can't be the case that if they're engaged in their activity, they're necessarily engaged in activity that is under scope of office taking care that the laws be faithfully executed. All right. So I want to come back to the mechanics of this whole process, which is now involves the Georgia state prosecution, as well as a collateral litigation in the 11th Circuit, uh, trying to get it out of uh, Fulton County Court. So, Anna, do we have any sense of how long the 11th Circuit and then the Supreme Court are likely to take to review Judge Jones's ruling? Is this something that's going to be dealt with in a kind of shadow docket sort of way. It'll run up and down like in kind of motions to 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 stay or that we're going to have, are we going to have kind of months of federal appellate litigation over whether the Georgia case gets to go forward in Fulton County Court at all? Well, it's really unclear, and that is unfortunately one of the problems here is that we don't know. I will say that the 11th Circuit has thus far acted very quickly to set some briefings, initial briefing schedules following Meadows' motion for an emergency stay pending appeal and an, and a motion for expedited review. So Meadows does want this to be expedited. He has uh, suggested a schedule that would have the 11th Circuit wrapping up oral argument by the week of September 25th. The 11th Circuit, you know, in response to that, there's a deadline within a few minutes uh, for the Fulton County prosecutors responding to Meadows' motion for an emergency stay at the 11th Circuit and for expedited review. There is also another deadline at 5 p.m. today in which the court instructed Fulton County prosecutors and Mark Meadows' team to submit additional briefing on the question of whether former federal officials can remove, not just current federal officials. It seems like that has been something that's been assumed in other cases that former federal officials can remove so long as the conduct alleged against them was done at the time that they were federal officers. So we have these issues that that are uh, kind of percolating, but at the same time, we just don't know uh, ultimately how long it's going to take the 11th Circuit to decide the case on the merits. We do know that there are instances in which the 11th Circuit has acted quite quickly when it comes to criminal prosecutions involving Trump. Uh, So if you think back to the Lindsey Graham subpoena battle, that all, you know, was resolved and went up to the Supreme Court within a matter of a few months. Uh, You also can think back to the special master litigation after Judge Eileen Cannon appointed a special master and, and effectively blocked the Justice Department from continuing its investigation in the Mar-a-Lago documents case for some time. That was resolved. I I think the order came down in September and the 11th Circuit had uh, vacated and dismissed the order of Judge Cannon by November or December. So 
things have have gone quickly in the past, but we really just don't know. And that's and that complicates things because in Fulton County, we have these trials coming up in October of Ken Chesbro and Sidney Powell. Fulton County prosecutors have said that they want the whole case to be tried then in October. Uh, judge Mac McAfee, who is the presiding state court judge, has expressed some skepticism about that, in part because of this lingering question about removal and how it could affect the proceedings in, in state court. He mentioned, for example, the question of how double jeopardy might apply if in the middle of a trial, the 11th Circuit or the Supreme Court decides that actually the case should have been playing out in federal court. And that's an issue because in Georgia, jeopardy attaches uh, from the moment that the jury is sworn. So it could potentially be the case if these folks start going to trial in October and then the case is all of a sudden removed to federal court and you have to swear another jury. There's this question of, okay, well, under Georgia law, is that mean that there's a double jeopardy violation? Um, so it's all kinds of complicated uh, questions here, and I I really don't know how it's all going to play out, but uh, we will see. So we are going to leave it there, but I have one more question that I want to ask Alan in particular, who is, I think, fair to say of the group of you, the most uh, emphatic that this should be in federal, not in in state court. And I guess my question is, if the 11th Circuit and the Supreme Court look at Judge Jones's ruling and say, good enough for us, that is, federal courts took a quick look at Mark Meadows's best case for removal and says, you know, this doesn't meet the standard uh, for removal and we're content to let this proceed in, in, in Fulton County, does that satisfy your sense of a need for federal review before a, you know, the conduct of the president is assessed by a state court? Or does the thing actually need to be tried in federal court for you and for and for the specifically for the for the federal defenses to be weighed in federal court for you to have the sense that the federal courts have done their oversight job? Well, I guess it depends a little bit as to what you mean by the appellate and Supreme Court being okay with this, which is if 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 what you mean is the appellate and Supreme Court take these cases and affirm explicitly that by definition, any action to change a state court uh, or to involve the president in the electoral college certification, that by definition, any of those actions are outside any legitimate article to authority. If they conclude that, then yeah, that satisfies me. I think that would be a, a titanic constitutional holding. I mean, it would be the most important you know, immunity, uh, an Article Two case in many decades, uh, quite possibly one of the most important in American history. But ultimately, that's what the Supreme Court is there for. Um, if by contrast, you're asking, um, you know, am I okay with um, the appellate and Supreme Court saying, eh, we'll let this go through state court, but then we know that Trump will ultimately appeal. And then at that point, we'll decide this issue. I mean, again, they can do that. That just seems to me a very backward way of of doing this. Because ultimately, I think this is a case in which, sure, there's some facts in dispute, but really it's fundamentally a legal question that we are dealing with at the heart of this case, which is the legal question of what are the president's constitutional authorities. And it just seems very weird to me that we would not want to just address that issue first within the proper forum, which you know is not just federal court, but is the Supreme Court itself. Lee, what do you think? What would what would satisfy you? that the due diligence obligations of the federal courts had been done here? I would hope that they perceive the need to rule on this and provide like a fairly informative discussion of why they're ruling the way they ultimately rule. And that's because we're entering this new era of retributive prosecutions of federal officials. Like, I don't think this is the first time it will happen. You know, in much the same way we're seeing now retributive impeachments 
and sort of just payback. Uh, and you know, everybody needs to know where they stand, right? Federal officials, when they're doing stuff that may be close to the line, need to know whether or not they're at risk of criminal prosecution. Congress needs to know whether it needs to rewrite the statute. So I think everybody would be a lot better off if both the 11th Circuit and the Supreme Court said more rather than less. I could not agree more. And, you know, I have, I will close with a single prediction, which is when some state prosecutor in Wyoming indicts Joe Biden for having taken a phone call from Hunter Biden when he was vice president, everybody's going to be on the opposite side of this issue uh, than they are today. Uh, we are going to leave it there. Anna Bauer, Lee Kowarski, Alan Rosenstein, thank you all so much for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, our audio engineer. It's a special week, so we have a special guest audio engineer, Ian Enright, the founder and proprietor of the excellent firm of Goat Rodeo. Hey folks, you need to do your part and become a material supporter of Lawfare. We are closing in, uh, albeit from a distance, on the idea of an entirely reader-supported site, and we want you to be a part of it. So go to lawfaremedia.org slash support and become part of the solution. Among other things, you will never hear an ad on this podcast again. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by the one, the only, Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by the singular Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>